Uh, could you please open your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6? This is the word of the Lord. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, those, to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, if you could take a moment um, after Exodus to uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, 13 to 16. And I'll give you guys a minute for those of you who have physical Bibles. Um, yeah. But yeah, again, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And the word of the Lord reads as this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God our Father who is in heaven. Amen. Thank you, friends. You'll keep those Bibles open, perhaps a piece of paper or a ribbon in those two passages, that will be our primary text this morning. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. Grateful, as always, to be with you. With considering the second <clears throat> commandment, we have to consider this idea of image. As we live in a world of images, don't we? In fact, it's been recently reported that uh, people uploaded an average of 1.8 billion digital images every single day. That's 657 billion a year. And as uh, writer uh, Rose Eveleth put it, she said, in other words, every two minutes, humans take more photos than ever existed in total only 150 years ago. And in fact, somebody whispered to me just before I came up, they heard that I was going to be speaking about this, and they said 60% of social media pictures uploaded last year in the United States were selfies. So, images and images of self. And then some statistics tell us that the internet, this is trippy, doubles every other year. If you feel like you continue to not know stuff, it is emblematic simply by the size of the internet. But I do think that the sort of digitalization of our faces is of the least amount of consequence even after that crazy old person app that came out, right? When everybody was posting their mug and giving their face away to like foreign governments and stuff, like that whole situation. That's actually the least of our worries, believe it or not. Because in this particular age, we care not just about uploading the image, but uploading it perfectly, Right? In fact, when, when Instagram came out in 2010, the filters were awesome, weren't they? Because they could shine up your face. They could transform that mug that maybe people didn't want to see, like head on, like directly. And you could maneuver it just so that it, it, it had a twinkle 
in the eye. And in fact, when Snapchat and Instagram stories start coming out, though, we do something a little bit different. Instead of polishing ourselves, we do something called curated imperfection, where it's like, look at me, I'm so real. I'm in this moment in between moments, and you don't even know how edgy I am, because I keep it 100 all the time and even post that picture when I don't have makeup on, right? Like that kind of culture. In either case, though, let's just be real. We're putting forward an image that we believe is good. We're putting forward an image that we believe is righteous. We continue to cast the image out to the world as if everybody is paying attention. And usually we don't think about it. We don't contemplate it any more deeply than this. So the religious response to this is actually pretty simple. Just get rid of your phone. Get rid of that phone. It's evil. Put it away. It's making you sin. It's taking you away from Jesus. Get that phone out of there. But let me just put it to you this way. An app is neither sanctified nor secular. An app is ones and zeros put together just so that perhaps will welcome you into sin, but that is not a sin in and of itself. It's a benign sort of thing. So we're not off the hook just by getting rid of our phones or simply acting like it's not that big of a deal. We have to face the images that we are creating. We've made devices to show the world who we are. And when it doesn't work out, isn't it interesting? We blame the device. We point the finger at the device. This, it, the devil didn't make me do it, but this phone sure did. This phone is the one that is dragging me down. The phone is the one that is ultimately doing this. But, but friends, with love, it is not the phone's fault that your soul is not satisfied. It is not the phone's fault that your soul is not satisfied. We often look to this form of digital communication and image making that really is just a golden calf producer as if it is the issue and not our hearts. See, I think it reveals ultimately something deeper in us is that perhaps the salvation that we need is not the salvation we thought we had. The salvation that we realize that we need is so much more holistic than just simply being a part of a church or believing in God. It ne we need transformation. So today, as we consider the second commandment, it flows naturally from the first, but if we're not careful, we will just simply hear it as a reiteration of the first. The first being, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And by the way, one of our elders preached on this last week, and if you were not here, you missed a moment in the life of our church. You need to listen to that sermon that ultimately, this is going to flow naturally out of that. It's going to flow naturally out of thou shalt have no other gods. But it is not just a regurgitation or a repetition of the first. It is an extrapolation or it's an explanation of more of really the practical way in which we begin to worship other gods. See, the making of an image in order to help us worship is ultimately what the second commandment is trying to unearth in us. And the question for us is what happens when that image is ourselves? If what the second commandment will teach us is that we don't need an image, we don't need a mediator to modify our worship between us and the God of the Bible, what, what do we do then when the image that we often make is, is ourselves? And I think that God's word will help us greatly in this. So let's ask for his help, and then let's dive into Exodus and Matthew. Heavenly Father, we are broken people, and we need a God who is unbroken. We, we desperately need a God who is not a creator of our own, or a, the created thing of our own imagination, but ultimately the creator of all things. And so, Father, I feel this strange blend of desiring to just cower before you as utterly righteous and yet run to you as my only hope. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would help to inform us of that tension, that you are a holy God and yet you are full of love and grace. Would you help us, Father, to write our thinking today? If for one reason or another, perhaps we are simply uh, negligent or not thoughtful about the way that we live and move and have our being in this world, I pray that your, your gospel would encourage us today to be people who see the world as you have made it, to see the world through, an eyes, through the eyes of the gospel, through the eyes of the kingdom of Jesus. And we thank you that we don't just have to gather together to figure that out. We can go to your word. And so help us to submit to your word. Help me, Father. Help me to speak the truths of your word. Help me to be anchored deeply in this word as, I, as I've labored, I've tried to, and leading up to this moment, Father. Help me even now. I pray for my friends, Father. I pray for myself. As we hear something today that's just, ah, we just don't like it. I pray that you would help us to, to ask first, not do I like that, does that feel good, but is this from God? Is this his word? And how might I live my life in accordance to what he has spoken? And so, God, we just thank you. We thank you that it's not um, simply that we're coming together to get, hear the latest information and knowledge. We're coming to hear the timeless word of you, the God of the universe. And so, speak in this moment. We desire to listen. We ask that in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So we're going to continue, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, continuing in this series, I say to you, in this wonderful harmony of words, this IU construction that, that God is speaking both in Exodus 20 and also Matthew 5 in the Ten Commandments as well as the Sermon on the Mount, he is speaking this very relational language, I say to you, or, or this is what I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It is foundational to what he is saying, his nature, his character, his identity as the Lord of Israel, his people. His purpose is established, therefore, by relationship. Not just by these words, but by relationship with those whom he is speaking. So he's saying, I say to you. Now, I don't want to over-exaggerate this particular moment, but it's fundamental for us to understand what we are talking about. This is not a God who shows up out of nowhere and just drops information. This is a God who is in relationship. We pick up his proclamation in the midst of a narrative, and therefore we must take it as such. And so he speaks to his people. He speaks directly to them. He speaks directly to his people. Now, if you came hungry today, that's all you need. That he is a God who speaks to his people. He is there and he is not silent. Isn't it true most of our lives are lived as if we have a God who does not speak? And here he is graciously repeating himself. Jesus will use this same IU construction, but we'll begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. Here's the second command, second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The very beginning, verse 4, he says, you shall not make for yourselves carved images, the likeness of anything in heaven or in the earth or the waters 
underneath the earth. And in other words, this commandment sort of has three layers to it. The first is that you do not make these images. The second is that you do not bow down to them. And thirdly, you do not serve these images. So don't make them. Don't bow down to them. Do not serve them. Simply, I think, by looking at this sort of three aspect, these three layers of the commandment, we see now that the image or the, the issue is not really just in making images, right? Some in church history have taken this to say, therefore, we shouldn't be artists. We shouldn't be photographers. We shouldn't be those that make beautiful art and images for people to look at because it says that you shall not make images. But ultimately, these should be taken together. Art is a beautiful expression of the heart of a creative God, but those images were never meant to be bowed down to nor to serve. Most importantly, we see that ultimately the relationship with these image is the issue. Our relationship with them. Isn't that wild? That we can make an image and then have a relationship with it. We can have this love-hate relationship with an image. A serving, a bowing down relationship with an image. What this means is that the second commandment is not simply a re- reiteration of the first. This is, just not, this is not just a different way of saying no other gods. It is a practical pathway of living this creed. Living out the creed of the first commandment means then you won't make any other images. So we have to understand this is not about replacing God. Specifically, what God is saying to Israel in the second commandment is that they are not to make things through which to worship him or draw close to him. Israel is not supposed to make stuff that they believe will get them close to God, that will give them a better picture of God. In fact, many ancient Near East religions followed this particular practice of making statues or idols, in other words, images, But they didn't make them as artifacts, these artifacts, as gods themselves, as often was the case. But ultimately, as Old Testament scholar John Durham writes, he tells us this. The first of these three specifications is a prohibition of the use of images in the worship of Yahweh. That, That word in the original language means to cut or shape something, stone in particular, Or even the noun form refers to an image or whatever likeness involving a variety of materials made for the use of worshiping of deity. Such images, he continues, were used throughout the ancient Near East as a means of suggesting the presence of deity, not as objects to worship. The image was much more something corporal than the divine influence possessed. In other words... The people worshiping a particular God saw that that God lacked something, and so they made something that filled the void that made them worship that thing better. The practice of making images was not at first about making gods. It was about making worship aids, things that would help me worship God. So what God is prohibiting in the second commandment is making things, any things, images of animals, of ideas in the sky, the sea, the earth, in hopes, we may assume, of worshiping God more efficiently or effectively. Are we getting to the 21st century yet? Are you feeling it? Here we go. Why? Why would God want us to not have such worship aids to be used by his people? Because images don't just reflect things, they shrink them. Images don't just reflect things, they shrink them. Images make things smaller, more accessible, more comprehensible, if you please, more comfortable. 
Eugene Peterson puts it this way. The, the Bible isn't interested in whether we believe in God or not. It assumes that everyone more or less does. What it is interested in is the response we have to him. Will we let God be as he is, majestic, holy, vast, and wondrous, or will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our small minds, insist on confining him within the boundaries we are comfortable with, refuse to think of him other than in images that are convenient to our lifestyle. But then we are not dealing with the God of creation and the cross of Christ, but with a dime store reproduction of something made in our own image, usually, he says, for commercial reasons. Images belittle God and images belittle our relationship by demanding that God conform to us and our consciousness. But God will not be truncated. You can't shrink him down. This is merely an attempt. You actually can't do it. He can't be created, carved, cut, shaped into images that will simply help you get to him. So for our good, God commands against worship aids, crutches for confession, pictures to conjure praise, or statues to solicit some kind of emotion. He says, stay away from those. We are to have no man-made mediation in our relationship and worship of God. Why? Because this is ultimately what it's getting at. The issue of image creation is not relegated to the ancient Near East. Wouldn't it be great if the Old Testament was really just this story about what bad people did back then, right? That'd be so wonderful if we could just sit here and just go, they were crazy. They made up all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm so glad Jesus is here. We never do that. That's not how it works. What the Old Testament does that makes us very uncomfortable is put the human issue on full display for us, even those who are really, really religious, See, we all make images through which we hope to more conveniently worship the God of the Bible. The habit of the heart, I think, is revealed. Did you notice that language? In the very beginning of verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves the carving of images and the making of likenesses, whether these animals or ideas or people. See, it's an issue that persists in making worship about us, considering worship through our own eyes. You see, it's challenging to worship an invisible God, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard raising children to worship an invisible God. And yet it seems that they have a childlike faith that often puts us on blast. You see, it's, it's challenging to do so because it makes us feel more comfortable and we can taste, touch, and see something. In other words, control it and boil it down to something lesser than us that we can identify so this prohibition exists because there is no image that could rightly capture God or rightly direct us to God because any reflection of God falls short of describing even the outskirts of his glory, even the outskirts of his likeness. What's more, God explains in Deuteronomy 4, you shouldn't make images because I didn't show up in a form. I didn't show up to you that way, so why would you put me in that way? God the Father remains unseen. Images, therefore, cannot capture the fullness of God. So to worship God through a created thing is to worship God not as he is. Here's what I think we really fear. See, not only this, but the Lord who made our hearts knows our hearts and knows ultimately 
that what we begin to make images of, we very soon begin to worship. We get it confused. Romans chapter 1 teaches us this. Apostle Paul, he understood this as a baseline ailment. Hear this from verses 23 and 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. We do not need images to help us worship God. God is appropriately worshipped through himself. And so, the first commandment God is saying, what? I am supreme. And the second commandment, what is he saying? I am sufficient. I am enough. Are you with me yet, church? See, making images is not just forbidden for all these things, but it's also forbidden because it goes against our nature. See, we are not image makers. We were made in an image. We should not make reflections of things to get us to God because God made us his reflection that we might be with him. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27 put it clearly. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In this culminating picture of God's created order, when he is about to bless and say very good, the fundamental distinction between humanity and everything else that God created is what? The image. The image of God. And notice in that particular portion of Scripture, God repeats that three times. The image and likeness language gets repeated over three times. Why? Not because God forgets, right? God does not repeat himself because he's like, I, I'm not sure if I said this already. So just in case. No, he knows that we forget. He knows that we forget. So whatever he repeats, he is putting as primary of importance. And so he repeats our nature over and over again. So that our understanding and reflection of the second commandment is that making an image is not just wrong because God cannot be captured in an image. It also defies our nature as well. We are meant to reflect and represent, not make things to reflect and represent us. So the two things I'd like to highlight about what it means to be made in the image of God is just that. First is that we reflect God. To be made in God's image means at least that we reflect him in the way that we are created, in the way that we have cognition, mental capacity, spiritual faculties, Abilities to, to ultimately have a soul it points to the fact that God is spirit. That ultimately that we have the capacity for love regardless of the way that that love gets expressed. How well we do at love. Our capacity to do so reflects that we have a God who is love. This should not be taken as sort of like the sterilized understanding of our component parts, but ultimately that God infinitely shows his love for us in that he has identified with us in his likeness. He wants to be known with us. I mean, he can't get away with it. We represent him. We reflect him. We display him, right? It's like when one of my kids acts, acts a fool in public, I can't go. That's not mine. They look like me. I identify with them already. There's nothing I can do about that. How loving of God, knowing that we would be rebellious humans, says, I'm going to make you like me, that no matter what you do, you will point back to me. <sighs> Secondly, we represent God. And to be sure these come into their fullness when we are redeemed, reconciled by Jesus. But to represent God means that we are not only meant to sort of 
reflect him in our, our nature, but also in what we do and how we live. Those faculties, those mental and spiritual faculties are the beginning of it, but now everywhere we go and everyone we speak to whispers and speaks the name of Jesus, of God himself and of his nature. Therefore, the mandate given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it was only possible because they reflected God. They were made in his image. So everywhere they went, they royally reflected God's kingdom identity. This mandate is the same for us, to give witness to the king, God himself, throughout his creation, which is all of creation. Jesus, of course, understood this, so turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 and following. Jesus understood this, and so he taught his disciples to reflect and represent God even at the baseline of their nature. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, beginning of the New Testament, Mark is the first gospel account, the first book in the New Testament, so if you're still in Exodus, turn to the right a number of chapters. Here's what it says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, verse 16 says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus makes our identity clear, doesn't he, with these two different metaphors, salt and light. Who we are, therefore, is found in God himself. The, the original language is likely Aramaic, but in Greek translation, they, they chose this emphatic way of communicating you. Literally, it says, you yourselves. He's speaking directly to them, to his disciples, about you yourselves. But Jesus' disciples were not being offered the kingdom if they behaved this way. He's saying, this is who you are in my kingdom, therefore act this way. Jesus is making sure that they understand to be part of the kingdom is to identify as salt and as light. And Jesus uses these two. And one is a bit mysterious. The other is really, really clear. Let's consider the first one, salt. He says, you yourselves are salt of the earth. Now, I cannot tell you through church history how many different ideas people have offered up about what Jesus is saying, right? It's like, it's about flavor. Like, the church is supposed to be, like, really tasty to the world. They're like, whoa, that escalated quickly. <laughs> or it purifies, or it seasons, or it fertilizes, all these sorts of things. But then biblically, when you look at it, when you look at the way that this metaphor is used through Scripture, we see something richer still, that, that it has this sort of uh, identity of wisdom, of sacrifice, of covenant, and of morality. So there's all of these different options, and we, would, we must be careful to choose one over another, because to choose one is to miss, perhaps, one of the other aspects of this identifying metaphor. And so it's probably best to take it from a wider lens, to not find out which specific thing that Jesus had in mind and that his followers, his listeners may have had in mind, but to really look at the essence of all of those things together. So the best route in taking this sort of general and inclusive route of this metaphor is to consider that in some way, salt is to be broadly understood as vital to first century life. 
vital, fundamental. This is not something that can be taken away and everything still function as it is. So on many levels, it is vital. So what Jesus is at least saying to his disciples is that the call to be his disciple is vital to the kingdom project of Jesus giving witness to him in the world. So it's not just something, in other words, for like the professional Protestants to be salt in the world. But if you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you are vital. We are all ambassadors of Christ. We are all meant to be equipped to do the work of ministry. We are vital to what the Lord is up to because we bear his image. Secondly, Jesus says, you yourselves are the light of the world. This one is much clearer. Biblically, though, it begins not with ourselves, but this sort of ubiquitous and obvious reading of light throughout the scripture takes us to God. God himself is light. 1 John 1, 9. Christ brings light into the darkness. John 1, 4 through 5, 9, 12, and 46. But in the epistle, in the letters that Paul wrote, he extends this metaphor beyond Christ, beyond God, now to those who follow him. In Ephesians 5, 8, calling us children of light. God is the preeminent source. God is the preeminent light of truth, of reality in the universe. And therefore, what Jesus is declaring over his followers is you are meant to reflect him to the world. Notice that ultimately what we're getting out here is that salt is not about salt. It's about whatever it's part of. It's it's illuminating something else. Light is not about light. It's about what it reflects. It's about what it's shining brightly onto. In other words, you disciples are not about you disciples. You're about somebody else. See, where it doesn't end, here's where I think we think it ends. If you live as salt and you live as light, then verse 16 would have ended so that they may see your good works. And you're like, that's right. They will see my good works. I'm salty. I'm bright. You're welcome. Right? This is ultimately how we can read this. But it doesn't end there, does it? Somebody say amen. Amen it doesn't read there because when people start looking at me, everything falls apart. People just start looking at you. Everything falls apart. You are fundamental to the kingdom, but you are not ultimate and neither am I. That ultimately as salt and light, we are meant to do what? How does that verse conclude? To give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, we are reflecting the light appropriately. We are salt appropriately. We are who we are appropriately when the image of God does not end with us, but it shines brightly to the one who gave us his image. We are not makers of images, of worship aids. We are made in the image of God. We worship him by representing and reflecting him through relationship directly with him. This is what the Ten Commandments, this is what the the Sermon on the Mount alone is is to be worshipped. God is to be worshipped from this directly through himself, not through images of our own design. Now, I think if we take a step back for just a second, doesn't this feel incredibly demanding and controlling? God's like, worship no one but me and worship me exactly as I say that you are supposed to worship me. I think perhaps in our weaker moments, it might even feel petty that God is so dictatorial with the ways that we're supposed to approach him. And so the question is, can God order our worship? Is God allowed to order our worship? Like, isn't it enough? But like, yo, I'm here, God. I showed up, so take what I give because at least it's something, right? Let's just be real. Sometimes we're just like, at least it's something, God, because I know my neighbor. They didn't even show up to church today. They never been to a church. They don't even know about you. But I do, and I'm here, so you're welcome. We may not say it, but we show it, and the Lord knows it. Here, 
the great late Christopher Hitchens, one of the leading thinkers of the new atheist movement, wrestled with this even as a child. Here's what he wrote in his book, God is Not Great. He says, why, if God was the creator of all things, were we supposed to praise him so incessantly for doing what came naturally? This seemed servile, he said, apart from anything else. But see, God doesn't just shy away from this. He leans in. There's a richer explanation that God gives himself. Look at verse 5. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 helps us to understand that I think sometimes we feel like we found cracks in God's character that he doesn't know about. Like, what about that, God? Did you think about that? Yes, he has thought about that already. He was not waiting for you to figure him out, and he wasn't waiting for me either. Look what he says in the uh, latter half of verse 5. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So God takes our innate discomfort with his prescription of worship. And he's like, you think that's bad? You You think I'm petty? You think I'm controlling? No, 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 no. That's the wrong word. I'm jealous. I'm jealous for you. He claims that he is jealous. Jealousy, it turns out, is a core quality of God. This was not a weak moment where God accidentally let part of his characteristics leak out and went, ah, they know that about me now. His jealousy runs deep and his jealousy runs throughout the scriptures. Please hear this as I walk us through a couple of places. Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God Joshua 24 19 and 20 but Joshua said to the people you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God he is a jealous God he will not forgive your transgressions of your sin or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods foreign gods then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Nahum 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary and keeps wrath for his, for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will be by no means clear the guilty. His way is in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Might I suggest to you, you can't create an image to capture that. Makes us really uncomfortable as modern people, doesn't it? Low-key, did you just hear that? Like, God's real angry. God is very angry. What do we do? (laughs) What we often do is we just go, let's just look at Jesus. He doesn't get that angry. Yeah, he does. Especially when you get to Revelation. His wrath, his anger, that's Jesus, is just as jealous as God the Father reveals in the Old Testament. See, this prohibition against making images is anchored in the character of God, namely his jealousy. So what is it? Doctrinally, God's jealousy is an aspect of his love, believe it or not. Let me help explain it this way. If you think about it, to truly be in love with someone is to be jealous for them. The nature of our love is an aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. It's a way that we reflect him too. You ought to be jealous in your affections as well. One theologian explains it this way. 
Genuine love is positively jealous. It is protective, for the true lover seeks to maintain, even defend, the love relationship whenever it is threatened by disruption, destruction, or outside intrusion. Whenever another seeks to injure or undermine the love relationship, he or she experiences love's jealousy, which we call wrath. Hear this. When this dimension is lacking, love degenerates into mere sentimentality. Many of us are comfortable with a God who is sentimentally loving. We don't really have a category for a God who is jealous in his affections. In this, we see a significant difference between a fundamentally, like significantly, maybe perhaps small change in being jealous for someone and being jealous of someone. God is not envious in that he is wishing and hoping and upset that someone else has something else because he owns everything. There is nothing that is not in his possession. He is jealous for his people. And so when God tells us not to make anything to worship him, to make no images to worship, he is giving us guidelines of divine love, of the covenant, of caring for us, of ministering to us, of protecting us, of cherishing us. He is giving us what is good for us. He is fighting for what is good for us, the appropriate context and boundaries of covenantal love. He is our one true love, and to betray him, to go against him, is to hurt us and harm us. And therefore, in order to help us, he reveals his love for us in such a heightened, wrathful, and jealous way that nothing would compromise our devotion for him. This is how we ought to reflect, excuse me, and represent him in the world is to have an equal kind of jealous affection for God. We don't want anything to get in the way of our worship of him. See, the, the issue with making images is that we're sort of passive and go, uh, it's cool if I don't have direct contact with him. I'm not jealous for him. I love him. I like him. And that kind of person that maybe you'll show up at their funeral, but you don't want to go on vacation with him, that kind of person. That's often how we treat God. We'll grieve and lament and be sad and mourn and probably have this sort of emotional or sentimental relationship with them, but to give them our life, our free time, our money, our whole heart, our enjoyment, our pleasure, our desire, we're not jealous for him that way. And I think this lack of jealousy is explained really, really well when we look a little bit further in the story of Exodus to when the Ten Commandments are now being brought down to the people of God. Because notice in uh, verse 5, a little bit further, it says that he visits the iniquities of the fathers and of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Contextually, the word hate are those who make idols, those who make images, those who bow down to images, those who serve images rather than the genuine and only God. See, I think sometimes we, we live in such comfortable proximity with our sin that this seems so extreme. Like, why would God hate? Because it's so fundamentally different than a jealous kind of love that he has for us. He is so wrathful for time with us, to be with us, not because we are special, but because we are his. Because we are his. He made us for relationship with him. And so to behave in any other way as if we need a buffer between us and God is as if we have worshipped another God. He's like, you don't even know me. 
See, this is the unexpected nature of making these images, is pretty soon what we made to worship God becomes our God. What we made to worship God almost rarely starts that way. We rarely set out to reject God and take on another love. We rarely make plans to make idols. But what we do is allow anger, impatience, frustration, doubt, fear, pride, jealousy of someone to go unchecked and to transform, cut, carve, and shape the good of God's creation into something it was never intended to be. That's actually what happens when Moses comes down from Sinai. Would you turn to the right to Exodus chapter 32? Exodus 32 verses 1 and following. The writer of Exodus gives us an incredible glimpse of what's going on at the bottom of the mountain. Keep in mind Joshua is sort of like in between waiting for Moses to come down. The people of God with Aaron, Moses' brother, down at the base of the mountain. Here's what begins to take place in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings and gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, hear this, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Please notice, it is Moses who is delayed, not God. The people are frustrated that Moses has not showed up yet. And it is Moses that they want to replace with gods who will lead them. So they are not setting out to replace Yahweh, but Moses. But it's also pretty clear that they're a little bit too enamored with Moses. Because they had said that Moses led us out of Egypt. This happens all the time. It still happens today. That whatever physical human is leading an organization, particularly the church, we begin to associate our relationship with God through that individual. They adulate him as a celebrity. They are enamored with him. And I mean, who can blame him? He's literally Moses. It's literally who he is. Moses, the man who brought you out of the land of Egypt, Moses has ascended in their minds to a mediating role between them and God. So Israel is replacing not God per se, but rather their mediator, Moses, with a golden calf. That's why in verse 4, they now give credit to these golden calves, these gods, for liberation from Egypt, not Moses as they previously had done. But it gets even wilder. You keep following this story. It gets crazy. The people of God don't even realize. Right? If you're in this space right now, you go, I don't have any idols. I don't make any images. The people of God didn't even realize what they were doing. They didn't realize they were rebellious. They, they, they weren't setting out to be morbidly sinful. Look at verse 5. 
Aaron, again, Moses' brother, announces the following day, they'll have a feast unto the Lord. If those letters are capitalized in your Bible, it means it's giving us indication. That's the word Yahweh. That's his name. That's who, who the God of the Bible is, Yahweh. They'll make a feast to Yahweh tomorrow. So hear this. They are planning a worship gathering unto God the next day while they are making images for themselves. They didn't even realize what they were doing. In fact, even after Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, here's what Aaron explains it. He's like, let me tell you what's going on. Don't freak out. Look at verse 22. He's like, I know, I know. This looks bad. This looks bad. Let me just look at verse 22. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord, referring to Moses, burn hot. You know the people, the people, you know these people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now, when the writer of Exodus is retelling the story, what does he say? Aaron takes out tools to carve this thing. And now what is he saying? Dude, I don't even know. Like, threw it in. It just came out like this. Tries to blame the people, removes himself from the narrative, and out, out came this, I mean, this cat. You can just see his hands, like, raised up. Isn't it crazy? Despite their ignorance, what God sees, which is revealed in verse 8, he does not just see this as a simple mistake, he doesn't see this as sort of a passive, it's all good, everybody deals with it. This is idolatry, and you're worshiping another God. In other words, they did not make calves to replace God, but they did. They did not set out. In fact, they looked at these calves, they'll help us worship God tomorrow. And in fact, some would suggest that the way that Aaron recalls this, the way that he is speaking about it, he's even giving credit to God, that God gave us this thing. This is why he starts using this passive, inactive language, like God even provided this for us. This is what we do with our idols. We act shocked that we have them. We blame the people. We blame God that he gave it to us. And we're like, ah, you can't be mad at me. Calm down, Moses. Don't be angry. Scripture teaches us there are three primary idols, or perhaps uh, given three different metaphors in the scriptures for idols, religion, marriage, and politics. Or as Tim Keller, who you can't talk about idols today, apparently without talking about the Pope of evangelicalism, um, and the way he talks about idols is of love, whatever we love, whatever we trust, whatever we obey more than God. But if we think about it, our loves and allies and masters rarely begin in rejection of God. We, we don't step into a religion to get rid of God. We, we step into it in order to get close to God. We don't take on marriage to get rid of God. We, we take on marriage as a gift from God. We don't begin to think through politics. We don't begin to speak about politics in order to reject God. We, we take it as a way that we ought to have dominion in the world that God has given us. Yet they all become gods nonetheless. See, then the people of God put together all of these different resources, these earrings and rings and things that perhaps family heirlooms, anniversary gifts, marriage tokens, all things that were good things, threw them into the fire in order to help them worship God. Let me explain it this way. Sometimes we put our spiritual experience central to worshiping God. 
He alone is worthy of our worship. We wouldn't avoid that. But he is worthy of our worship directly. This was the issue at the base of Sinai. The people were eager to worship God, but they wanted to make something to help them worship God, something they could touch, something they could taste, something they could see, something they made by their own hands. They wanted a mediator. They even said to Moses previously, you approach God, we'll stay back here. They knew that they couldn't come into his presence, and so they make something that they believe would make them closer to him. Now, perhaps we don't make golden calves, but what we do is we elevate a particular learning style is the only way I can learn the Bible. We elevate a particular musical expression as this is the thing that opens up my heart and I sing on pitch with two hands raised. We do this when it comes to depending on a specific curation of praise and worshiping God. In other words, we come with our hands behind our backs and say, you better conjure up a good liturgy today because if you don't, I probably am not going to feel like it. God, they better sing my favorite song today. If they don't, I probably won't feel like it. We're looking for something outside of God to spark us as if that is what gets us to God. They didn't sing my song. They didn't sing this thing. My favorite worship leader wasn't up today. My favorite preacher wasn't preaching today. My favorite fill in the blank. We still do this. The real issue is that we think worship is about some feeling. It's about experiencing something instead of simply just condescending ourselves to reality, surrendering ourselves to reality that God is God and I am not. So no matter what I feel like, I'll be prostrate before this king. I will fall on my knees and worship. If not, but in my heart, I will fall. I'll be completely surrendered to him. See, no one sets out to make a worship style God, but we do. Romantic love. God created romance. He is love. Marital love is meant to give a reflection of this kind of affection he has for us. It can only teach us about God's love, though. It cannot fulfill and satisfy us. Because no matter how good your marriage is, it cannot completely satisfy you. We look no further than Genesis, the story of Jacob, who is completely blinded by the idolatry of marriage, believing that he is going to work hard and get Rachel. All of a sudden, he marries Leah, and then he has to marry Rachel too, and no one is happy. Everyone is sad. They don't like the children they have. It's completely broken. Because when you make things, they unmake you and break you. See, the real issue is not marriage. It's what we believe marriage is for, to make us feel complete, to make us feel whole, and therefore we put it at the center of our lives. We don't set out to make our spouse replace Jesus, but they, he or she ultimately does. This is true, by the way, even if you're not married. The aspiration of marriage, I will be complete, I will be whole once I am married. Just my own experience, I realized how incomplete I was when I married Laura because she shines back to me the truth of Jesus that is not yet solidified in my heart that I need to submit to. Thirdly, social power, political power, if you please. Oh, boy. Help me, Lord. God created power. He is ultimately in control. And very few people who are politically inclined seem to believe that today. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 8. The people of God clamor. They look all around. And they're like, yo, Sweden looks like they've got it together. Canada looks like they've got it together. We throw out all of these different kinds of countries and we go, if only we could be like them. It's exactly what Israel said to God in 1 Samuel 8. Look at all of these other nations. They've got kings. Can we have a king too? And he's like, don't you trust me? Yeah, but a king would be dope because he'd take us to war. He'd make our boundaries bigger and we, our guts bigger. Like we would be awesome if we had a king. 
And so Samuel comes to them and they go to Samuel. This is so interesting. They're not setting out to replace God. They go to God's prophet. They go to the prophet of God to get their God. And they say, Samuel, go tell God, we want a king. Samuel's like, God, they want a king. It's going to be bad. I know God. You're going to give it. Yeah, let's give it to him. It goes terribly wrong. Saul is terrible. He's a terrible king. So the hope for us is not that someday we'll have a good king or a president that we all back and all support and all love or a mayor that everybody is totally in line with. The hope is that one day we see that an incomplete mayor and a broken president and an insufficient political system points us to the only one who can satisfy us. So we do this on the right, on the left, in the middle, the green, is there a yellow, red, blue, See, the issue is that we have made politics into something. Never did we set out to replace God with it, but it does. What we learn about this all, it's really tricky. Sometimes I think it's revealed in our if-then relationships with God. God, if you give me this, then I'll worship you. God, if you give me marriage, then I, I will, I'll, I'll honor you with it. God, if you give me my person in the right political space and seat, then I'll worship you. God, if you give me children, I'll worship you. God, if you give me the right ed educational path, I'll worship you. But anytime we have an if-then relationship with God, we have an image that we are making and we are belittling and trying to shrink God down to our sides. And the damage that this creates is far, it's, it's, it's impossible rather to downplay. I think the real issue is that we are jealous of those who have a feeling in worship. We are jealous of those who we believe experience marital joy. We are jealous of those who are in control and we would do it better if we were in their position. And ultimately what we are revealing or what is rather revealed in our hearts is that we are not jealous like God. We are not jealous for him. We are jealous of those around us. This, of course, is the opposite of the gospel. Here's the good news. The good news is not that we will make the exact right image someday, but that the, the image of God showed up. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, this is Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the one who is not made in the image of God. Jesus is the one who is the image of God. Therefore, not only does Jesus fulfill the second commandment in that he doesn't make any other images, but he also fulfills it in that he has commanded by the image of God, or he fulfills this command by being the image of God in the flesh. He is the truest reflection of God. He is the truest representation of God. He is the only one, therefore, who can sufficiently be your mediator and mine. 
Jesus redeems our worship back to him through Christ by his spirit. Jesus redeems our vision of love and marriage through his gospel, that it's not our ultimate happiness, but Jesus is our truest joy. He redeems our understanding of social and political powers by reflecting and giving us a kingdom right here in this world through his people to see a true and lasting and transcendent power found only in King Jesus. In other words, Jesus makes us salt and light again in his kingdom family. And therefore, through Jesus, we can experience this promised steadfast love of God. Look at verse 6 in Exodus 20. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The love of our relationship or the love in our relationship with God the Father when mediated by Christ comes to us who do not make images. We don't need to because we are satisfied in him. God's people do not need images, artifacts, sentimental statues, gimmicks, that one song with that great backbeat, that one special preacher who says it just the way I like, that specific building, that specific space, that specific coffee, those specific people, that specific chair, that specific quiet time moment, that specific accountability partner. No, it is all through Jesus. Because of Jesus, the image of God, we are able to draw close to God and the image of God in printed on us flourishes. In a world of images, we need to pay attention. And this week, I think it's with incredible irony and yet incredible sorrow. It's like, you, know, you always pray like, Lord, help me to make this real. That's not just words. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. Because <clears throat> I think one of the questions is, how do I know that I have an idol? I think one of the ways that I know I have an idol, and I'll just use this as an example, is when I get angry. When I get angry. I don't, I'm not an angry person. In fact, I'm the self-righteous kind of angry person where I don't show it. It's all bottled up and you think I've got it together when I'm fuming inside. So this week as I was working on this sermon, I was working from home a lot and I have four children, period. <laughs> they interrupted me a lot. <laughs> they didn't know that I was doing the Lord's work in my office and... Um, <laughs> That the kingdom of God would rain down if I put the pros together appropriately for Sunday. And I realized I got, kept getting angry, kept getting angry, kept getting frustrated, bottling this stuff, would like yell and be so sensitive to any kind of movement in the room. Like, like sit down, everybody just be quiet. I'm trying to talk to Jesus. I'm trying to hear from him. Here's the thing that the Lord reminded me of. You see, even as the people of God were breaking the second commandment, as God was bringing them, the second commandment. I was breaking the second commandment while writing a sermon on the second commandment. It's that tricky. It didn't start as a replacement of God. It starts like a gift that God gives us and we begin to make it ultimate. And anger told me that I was fearful that if the sermon wasn't just right, I wouldn't be accepted. I wouldn't be drawn to God appropriately and nobody else would either as if the sermon is the mediator between the people of God and God himself and not Christ. Thanks be to God in Christ. I can identify that through the law and his word. I can confess that to you, the people of God, by the power of the spirit. I can confess to my children that their daddy was lacked self-control and love for them. I can receive forgiveness for my sin through the death of Christ and I can be restored to fellowship with my heavenly father who remains jealous for me through Christ. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you. Thank you that when we make and serve lesser things and bow down to them, you forgive us. You are such a generous God because you not only give us the law, you give us your spirit that reveals to us, shows us, reminds us of the teaching of Jesus, of your word, and we know when we have erred, when we have fallen short. And so God, help us. Help us to be mindful people. Help us to be awake people. Help us to be people that don't flippantly discard an idea like a golden calf and say we don't make those and move on our way and not ask that you would know us, that you would search us, that you would try us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in us that we might seek forgiveness and be led in the way everlasting. And so I pray that for my friends, would you reveal idols? Would you reveal images that are being created, ideas that are being trusted more than you? that Jesus might be rightly placed in our hearts and minds as the only mediator between us and God. Would you do that, Father, for your glory, for our good? In Jesus' name, amen. This is truly what we remind ourselves when we come to the table, friends. When we come to the table, we are reminded that it's through the death of Christ that we are made right with Christ. It is through the death of Christ that we are rejoined with our heavenly Father. And so as we come, we come lamenting we come confessing that we have fallen short of his glory, that we have not lived in accordance to his word, and yet we come celebrating that when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Your idols cannot forgive you. The images you make cannot reconcile you. The images that I make cannot help me in my time of need. Only Jesus does that. And so we come according to his name. We come according to his will. We come according to his glory. And so come, taste and see that the Lord is good. He'll take a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and you'll proclaim his death until he returns. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we'd ask that you would abstain. But if today you sense that ultimately you're ready to surrender, you're ready to confess your sin, to confess that he is Lord, the scriptures teach us the beauty of grace. Say that if you acknowledge with your lips, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus is Lord, then come, brother, sister, eat, dine at this feast with us. So Father, be honored in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.